Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Santa Barbara, California. And uh, before we get on with today's show, I want to remind you that uh, there is a website called wealthformula.com. Wealthformula.com is the home of the podcast. It's where the podcast lives. And it is also where you can sign up for all sorts of good stuff, including free books like uh, my uh, Wealth 1.0 book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. You can get that for free. George Newberry's got a book on there, Burn Zones. Well, he'll send you an actual book because uh, he's not as cheap as me. And also, it is the place where you can sign up for Investor Club for your accredited investors out there. And, uh, you know, accredited investor club, the Wealth Formula Investor Club, is basically where you go if you're tired of just sitting on the sidelines, letting your money uh, be lazy. You don't want lazy money, do you? Anyway, if you are accredited and you're interested in putting some of these concepts to use, you know, go to wealthformula.com and sign up for Investor Club. So as far as today's show, this is, uh, you know, it is the second week of September. It happens to be my birthday week. And as I reflect on the past 12 months, I, I can't help but think what a bleeping awful year. The only solace I take in my reflection is knowing the fact that, man, 12 months, things can radically change. Things can change really, really fast in 12 months. And so now all that needs to happen is that the pendulum just needs to start moving the other way, right? So the good news is that this time next year could and probably will look very different. That's, I think, fair, fair to say. I think there is a vaccination on the horizon. Um, hey, listen, we could be getting on planes to meet up in Dallas for a Wealth Formula meetup. We could be meeting at the bar, getting ready to get Tim McCleary'd, for those of you who know what that means. We could be shaking hands. We could be even hugging each other because it's been so long since we've seen each other. And man, I, I want to hug a lot of you out there. I'll tell you that much. We could also be looking at a very, very different economy because uh, think of it this way. Perhaps things will have taken a turn for the worse 
from the pandemic age repercussions. Uh, that's what a lot of uh, people are continuing to predict. Things will get very, very bad from everything that's going on right now. I don't know if that's true or not, quite honestly. I think there may be a uh, some temporary downturn. There could be. Or uh, this time next year, perhaps the sheer magnitude of pent-up desire for people to go out and party, buy stuff, travel, go out and eat, drink and be merry, will power United States GDP to record growth, launching us into the roaring 20s. So I will tell you something. I actually think that that could turn out to be an accurate prediction. I really, really do. And it's not based necessarily in sound economics, What it's based in is the fact that I am going to single-handedly contribute to this GDP by flying around the country, seeing friends, going to, you know, multiple sporting events. I'm going out there. I am going to party and contribute uh, to the growth of this economy, Uh, not just because it's patriotic, but man, am I tired of sitting here at home. The point is, that COVID-19 has already happened, right? COVID-19 is here. It's, it's, it's the reality, right? It's, 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 so it's not the future. Uh, but listen, I know it's not over yet. But I think it's wise, and I will say certainly more fun, to think about what happens next. Of course, this is an investing program, so let's focus on that subject as I'm sure there's many other things that would be interesting to talk about as what happens next. If you are an accredited investor and you are in our accredited investor club, as I mentioned earlier, you probably know that I've been very clear on my investment thesis in the last couple of years. I think it has served us very, very well. Keep it boring, stupid, right? That is the investment thesis, right? We've been doing a lot of like, apartments and self-storage, stuff like that. And this is generally good advice for all seasons, for sure. Uh, but I will tell you that we we should, uh, we need to adapt to new environments as they come up and recognize opportunities when they become available. I mean, that's what you do. That's how you make money uh, as an investor. Now, I will tell you that one of the spaces that I am personally interested in exploring over the next 12 months is indeed uh, in the hotel space. Admittedly, my only previous hotel investment has not fared well uh, to date. In fact, it was a construction project. It was offshore, uh, has had lots of problems, and as a result, I will tell you that it has soured me both on construction I'm not a big fan of construction projects. I'm not saying it'll never happen again, but I'll certainly uh, not invest in construction um, outside of the United States. So uh, I'm not a big, you know, foreign uh, investing person. I don't really care for it, uh, and I don't like construction very much either. But I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there, uh, there's a lot of people who've made a lot of money in these bread and butter domestic hotels like Hilton's and Hyatt's, you know, places where people have to go when they go places for work, et cetera, uh, in the United States. So 
I'm watching it closely. I want to know what's going on there. I want to learn that business a little bit and see if and when is a good time to get involved. So in the spirit of looking ahead, uh, which I think, again, is is certainly more uplifting than uh, thinking about what is going on right now, I have asked an expert in this area uh, to come on the show and share his experience in the space. Uh, he doesn't do uh, very many of these types of podcasts, uh, but he is a uh, contact through a contact of mine. Uh, he's a he's a guy, Steve Usher, who is uh, uh, very well respected uh, as a broker in California, which you know may not be where we want to in, uh, invest. But this is a, a guy who knows a lot about the hotel space. Anyway, Steve is going to tell us all about it and uh, give you an opportunity to start thinking about uh, you know what kinds of things might be appropriate uh, in the post COVID era. And we will have all of that right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Steve Usher. Steve is a founder of the Pasadena-based Titan Hospitality Group, which was founded in 1999. Titan Hospitality focuses on hotel brokerage assignments located throughout California. Since its founding, has closed upwards of about $2 billion in total hotel sales. And uh, prior to founding uh, Titan, Steve also worked with Cushman and Wakefield in San Francisco. Steve, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Great. Thanks. Nice, nice to meet you, Buck. So, yeah, Steve, let's just kind of start out. Tell us a little bit about your background. What got you involved specifically in uh, this space of, uh, um, you know, of hotels, which is a, a little unique niche within, within our real estate uh, world? Sure. Yeah, I'm actually originally from uh, San Francisco Bay Area. And I started working with Cushman Wakefield in their downtown San Francisco office in the early 90s. And their focus was really high-rise office building sales, uh, Union Square retail building sales. And uh, I noticed early on that when a hotel deal would come in the door, nobody knew what to do with it because it's, it's a totally different animal. It's not like any other kind of commercial real estate. Real estate. So I thought, well, this is really my opportunity to, to, to get up you yeah. know, the curve very quickly. So I said, I'm going to be the hotel expert. So that was in the yeah. early nineties. And then after about five years of that, I'd say by 96, I really kind of established myself and then moved down to LA in 96. Cause it's just a much, much bigger market. And so that's where I've been for about the last 20, 25 years. 
So, you know, it's interesting um, because you talk about how hotels are such a different animal. Um, talk a little bit about that. What are some of the similarities and differences, you know, compared to owning, you know, apartment buildings, which is really a lot of investors uh, were, in my in my audience are, were used to residential stuff or maybe we'll do a little self-storage or stuff like that. But but uh, what are the unique aspects about this space in terms of, uh, you know, whether it's property management, other issues, you know, obviously it's more hands-on, et cetera. Yeah, I think the main difference is with hotels, typically you're renting the rooms day by day uh, versus apartments. Uh, and on a profit and loss statement, the main difference is going to be uh, the uh, a number of fixed costs that you have. Uh, you've got obviously it's an operating business. You have housekeeping, you have a general manager, you have a director of sales, you, you pay franchise fees. Uh, your capital costs are a lot higher because these are furnished units that are getting a lot of wear and tear. So I think, uh, you know, it's funny because when I grew up, my dad owned some apartment buildings and I think your margins are probably what 60 to 65% as -hmm. far as your net income margin on a hotel. It's probably more like 35%. Mm -hmm. Your gross is higher, obviously, because you're getting, a higher daily, you know, revenue, uh, but you'll probably net 35% generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's really the main difference. They're much more hands-on. Um, you know, it's a business. It's, yeah. it's, it's really not a real estate, you own the real estate, but it's really not a real estate uh, deal. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Uh, you know, in, in apartment buildings, again, we have, we have different classes, you know, there'll be like a class, B class, E class, even D class stuff. Obviously we want to stay away from some of those. Um, you know, they have different risk or reward profiles. Is that kind of the same when it comes to hotels? Um, and, and, you know, what kind of investors tend to flock to each one of those classes if they exist? Yeah. Like any other real estate type, we have our class A and kind of moving down the spectrum. Uh, the class A would be your, obviously your four seasons type deals, your bigger full service, expensive deals, uh, you know, those would trade at a, at a lower cap rate. Uh, part of that is because they're, uh, they have, you know, obviously higher barrier to entry. So they're considered less risky. Uh, although in a moment like this, they tend to be maybe more risky because you got to fill all those rooms and they rely on groups and all this, but generally speaking, those are your class A deals. Uh, those are also obviously more institutionally owned. Uh, and sometimes that alone drives down the cap rate versus their, their risk profile. And then you work your way down the, the food chain all the way down to, you know, say your motel six kind of roadside type motel, which is more of a pure mom and pop operation The the kids may be working the front desk. I mean, it really is, uh, you know, mom and pop business. Uh, and th- those would trade at higher cap rates mainly because of, of the fact that you have to get more involved in them. You can't afford to have third party management. So it takes more of your time. And also there's lo- lower barrier to entries, for, for those kind of deals, you know, those things can get built all the time, you know? So, uh, yeah. that's also drives up the returns. And, and I'd say in the last cycle, you know, your institutional class A deals may be traded at a six cap and maybe those motel deals traded at a, at an eight cap. So there's maybe a 200 basis point spread between class A and, and your motel type deal. When you say in the last cycle, was that at the, at the peak or yeah, up until, February, up yeah. through February. Yeah. So, I mean, even like, you know, getting sort of really nice, uh, nice, um, you know, class A, if you will, 
hotels and stuff, uh, six cap sounds uh, pretty attractive there, certainly compared to other asset classes. But I guess that's really one of the advantages, right? Where you're really, uh, you know, you you have you have a functioning operating business, and therefore, you know, the potential returns are a bit higher, and that's the trade off. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, I look at a hotel as I, I think sometimes. Uh, I, I think six cap is probably tough for me to invest in a deal at because I, I see a lot more inherent risk. They go up quick, they go down quicker, you know, hotels sure. are much more, you know, it's not like residential where you're going to, that's your house or that's your apartment. You're, you know, you're always going to need it. Um, and I think the other thing that sometimes gets a little deceiving is the true capex of a deal. What you really have to spend to renovate that hotel over the course of a five or 10 year cycle tends to get underestimated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I've always felt that's a pretty low cap rate for a hotel deal sure, sure. if I were to personally invest in it. Let me ask you this, um, you know, just again, sort of riffing off of that is the, um, what are the issues with debt? I mean, in, in, um, an apartment building is pretty easy. Um, you know, most, uh, it's very readily available and, you know, they want to invest in, they want to, uh, loan to, apartment buildings and we've obviously on the larger ones we've got a lot of opportunity with non-recourse debt and freddie and fanny and all that uh, what does the lending world look like in this space well under normal times again non-covid times yeah uh, it's pretty easy to get a conventional loan say 65 percent loan to value uh you know we were probably getting loans in the mid fours fixed mm-hmm. and again i don't know what your apartment rates look like, but you could get a, you know, deal like that done pretty easily. Uh, you could go the securitized route uh, and probably get a higher leverage, maybe 75% loan to value. Um, there it is a truly non-recourse loan, but then you have all the issues with securitization. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to, to pay them off. And, and in troubling times like this, there's no bank to call. You gotta yeah. wait for the special servicer. Uh, so that's typically, you know, 65% conventional, 75% securitized. And then a lot of buyers, you know, for deals, say under 20 million, would do an SBA loan. Mm-hmm. And there you could get upwards of, a, of 85% leverage with some of their green initiatives. Mm-hmm. You know, if you also finance solar panels and put them in the parking lot, you know, you could get upwards of an 85% yeah. uh, leverage loan with SBA. Interesting. So obviously, you know, you, you've, you've kind of alluded to it, but, uh, you know, we are in the middle of a, a very unusual time. Um, you know, we're in, we're in the middle of a pandemic. COVID-19 has destroyed the travel and leisure industry worldwide. Right. And so yeah. can you give me a sense, um, of, of the scale of the problem and how hotel owners right now are coping with the pandemic? Yeah, we were like everybody else, just cruising along through February. Uh, in fact, uh, I'd gone to a really big hotel conference in downtown LA called Alice, which is one of the biggest conferences in, in, in the country. And, you know, COVID was referenced, but everybody kind of universally just kind of cast it aside. And then to think seven weeks later, you know, we're in a, we're in a, you know, global lockdown. So it's been, been pretty amazing. We're now, you know, what, six months into it, uh, immediately occupancies went from, you know, you probably have a 65% national occupancy rate, probably went down to 10 to 20% at hotels. I mean, everything just stopped. So a lot of hotels had to close. Um, and then PPP came up pretty quickly. 
So that allowed, you know, some to open because they could, you know, afford to, to, to make payroll. And as we've worked our way through the six months of this, I think uh, what I saw recently was about 70% of the hotels that had closed were now reopened. Uh, and really the only markets where you have pretty significant inventory closed, say 20 to 30%, would be your big urban centers, San Francisco, uh, Manhattan, Miami, or markets like, you know, Oahu. Uh, still have 20 to 30% of their inventory down. But, um, you know, most, most hotels have been able to reopen, you know, get, I think I also saw 90 over 90% have gotten some sort of forbearance from their lenders. So they're able to kind of make it work uh, yeah. for now. And, and, and everybody is hmm. just, I think in a wait and see attitude to see if we get this vaccine. Yeah. And, and if we do, then, you know, in, in short order, we'll get, um, you know, we'll start to see some real light at the end of the tunnel. In terms of where we went on the revenue side, like I said, we went from probably 65% national occupancy down to 10 to 20%. And even July, just this last month, uh, I think uh, national revenue stats were down like 50%. And that was better than the previous month, which was better than the previous month. So we're slowly coming off that floor. But you can imagine, I mean, if your revenue is down 50% and you've got all those fixed costs, uh, it's, it's, it's really, really, really tough right now. Yeah. Very tough. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, you know, it's, it's funny cause you mentioned how, uh, revenues are down, but then there's certain markets it seems like, and this is the same with apart apartment buildings where you've got certain types of class, you know, we, we working class apartment buildings are actually performing really well in, in some of these stronger markets. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we have a, we have a uh, common friend who's got a, um, you know, a hotel in Palm Beach, and he's saying like it literally is his revenues up like fifty percent compared to last year right now. So it seems like again, it's one of these uh, like this entire pandemic is done. It is um, taken, uh, you know, it's sort of really segregated the economy, whereas some parts of it are getting hammered and others are not. Yeah, the headlines are going to be the you know the Manhattans and the San Francisco's because that's where all the networks are based and the right. reporters, but. Uh, there are some markets, I think, extended stay hotels, you know, which are m- much more like uh, apartments. You know, they're, they're, they, they have separate bedrooms and kitchenettes. They've been doing much better than, and they're still down, but they're not, it's not a bloodbath. And that's because you have a lot of these uh, essential workers and, and they're basically short-term apartment rentals. That's right. what's kind of happening there. Uh, some drive to leisure markets are doing exceptional. Uh, Central Coast. You know, Santa Barbara, Pismo Beach, areas like that are doing really well because people are going to travel and they, they're not going to jump on a plane yeah. and they're not going to go to a city center mm-hmm. uh, and they want to get outside. So certain mm-hmm. areas are doing well. But um, And then there are some other smaller markets, like I'm doing a deal in Bakersfield right now, which hasn't, you know, it's maybe down 10 to 12% in the last month. It's just not, you know, it's not an international market. It's much more of a localized uh, community. So... Uh, but your bigger markets have been, you know, crushed. I mean, you know, Disneyland's not open, uh, San Francisco, nobody wants to go there. No one's going to do a convention. There are no sports teams. Uh, I think I read where, you know, 75% of um, uh, corporate travel has been, you know, basically taken off the board. So, yeah, there are a few spots that are okay, but generally speaking, it's it's been yeah. really tough. So with that in mind, are you, um, are you seeing much distress in this space? Uh, you know, from the perspective of, of sellers, um, you know, buying opportunities for, for individuals, um, or has, you know, the PPP program really kind of held, 
you know, held things together for people. And maybe that that's something we may see in the next few months. Yeah, I think it's too early for great distress opportunities. I think what you might find are deals, you might have an opportunity to buy something that's a good asset, but you're not necessarily going to get a great price on it. So I don't see any real distress yet. I think, again, people are kind of in a wait and see attitude for the vaccine. I think that obviously would be a game changer. Uh, you know, it's very hard to get owners to to sell unwillingly. And a lot of times in today's market, they have title, but they have no equity. So they can't yeah. really sell. And, and the lenders, it's the same thing. Every one of their loans marked to market today might be underwater. So they don't want to, you know, force the issue too much. So everyone's willing to kind of be patient, you know, for the next maybe 90 days or so and see what happens. Um, there are some hotel notes that are being sold, but that's maybe a 10 to 15% discount. That's not distressed. Uh, so at this point, I don't see any great distressed opportunities. I mean, I think if, if you wanted to invest in the hotel sector right now, I'd probably just go to the stock market and buy REITs hmm. uh, because I just pulled this today. I mean, I'm talking about hotel companies that actually own the real estate, not, not branding companies like Marriott or Hilton, which are really, you're just buying the franchise, the, the, the branding name. They don't own any real estate. Um, but some of these REITs are still are now trading at 50% from their peak value. Wow. And these are really, really good portfolios, uh, well-maintained, uh, great operators. So it's, it's really as simple as that. I mean, I, I can't get a private owner to sell at that great of a discount, but you could buy public shares right now. Yeah. It, it, it's pretty great number. What are some of the, what are the, some of the REITs that are well-known in this space? Uh, the ones that I like, and I'm not, again, I have no, no vested interest yeah, in these, yeah, right, but right. I, I've done business with them all. Um, Summit Hotels. Uh-huh. Uh, INN is the symbol, uh, Pebble Brook, uh, which, uh, is at a pretty big discount, but they own a lot of these urban center hotels in San Francisco and New York. But once those cities get back on their feet, they've got some incredible assets, uh, RLJ and Apple. Those are kind of the four that I like. I know their portfolios, uh, great, great markets, the best brands in there anywhere from 40 to 55% off their peak. And I think they've got enough cash on hand to get through their cash burn over the next 18 months or so. And if you look, their cash burn has been getting less and less each month as they've opened up hotels and the markets slowly start to start to start to improve. Well, that's, um, uh, that's very, that's actually very kind of you to share those kinds of, uh, that kind of information for a guy who's a, a hotel broker. It's kind of cutting your business right now. I would do it, but just, it's, you know, go where you can. Yeah, right. Exactly. Now. So let's talk a little bit though about, um, you know, obviously knowing what you know and, uh, you're interested in, and, in, in, in buying, uh, you know, getting into or exploring the possibility of buying a hotel for the first time, COVID or not. Okay. Um, knowing what you know, what would you say some basic criteria, if it were you, what would you Mm -hmm. target as a first time hotel buyer and why? I would probably buy a select service, which, uh, a well-branded select service hotel, like a Hampton Inn. Hampton Inn is Hilton. Uh, or a Marriott branded select service. That's where it's really, only, it's a rooms only property um, in a, a, a high barrier to entry market. Uh, what's good about the branded hotels is that there's so much brand loyalty in this business that 
um, you know, for the, uh, for the, you know, loyalty, the, the, the points programs that uh, Hilton and Marriott customers are extremely loyal. The brand, the hotels always do well. They're very standardized in their operations. And in most instances, they tell you what you have to do, who you have to hire. So there isn't a lot of, they take most of the thinking out of it for a first time owner. Uh, and then in a high barrier to entry market that saves you from, cause really the longest term risk for you as a hotel owner is, is the new inventory that comes in and, uh, that stops that from happening. So I would do a well-branded select service hotel in a, in a high barrier to entry market. That's interesting. So, um, is there, is there a, a certain minimum size that you think is a, uh, you know, if you get too yeah. small, it starts to, you know, not really be something you're going to want to do. Yeah, I would probably go uh, try to be over a hundred rooms because, you know, you're, all, you're always going to have a general manager, whether you have 50 rooms or 150 rooms, that GM might be your salesperson. They may not, but you're going to have all these fixed costs and to really start to hit your margins, your operating margins, you probably want to be, you know, certainly North of a hundred rooms. Mm-hmm. And most of those prototypes are that they're anywhere from a hundred to 150. And then, um, I'm, I'm curious too, like, um, are these, you know, if, if, if you're an investor, say you're an individual investor, or maybe you've got a, you know, small syndication or something like that, you're putting together something like this, how much, um, if you've got a branded, um, uh, service, select service, like a Hampton or uh, Marriott or whatever, how hands-on is that? Because, you know, you also have these you know, management companies, et cetera. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but is this a, can this be a relatively passive investment or is it pretty, is it going to be pretty hands-on? It's going to be passive until you hit COVID crises. (laughs) You know what I mean? And then nothing's passive, right? And then you're sitting at the front desk yourself trying to see. Yeah, no, if you've you've done your homework and you've bought a well-branded hotel uh, in a high barrier entry, strong market, um, it's not going to be a lot of brain damage operating it, uh, you would probably want to start off with third-party management until you got your feet wet. And maybe after a year or two, you know, if it's the only deal you own and you've got a good general manager in place and a good brand, uh, you might be able to get rid of the management company. Management company will typically charge you three to 4% of gross revenue. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would probably do that, you know, and just try to then own or operate yourself after you've got your feet wet, but it's not a lot of brain damage. Uh, you know, 90% of the time. Yeah. It's just moments like this. And then it's stay low levered. I mean, because that's, that's the thing is you've got these big swings in the revenue, things can get really good and then they can go really south for a while. And you just don't want to be stuck with an 85% leveraged loan. What's, what's, what do you recommend typically to your clients? Like more, more like a 65%? 60, yeah. Know. I would say 50 is conservative anywhere from 50 to 65%, you know, especially today where, you know, you're probably looking at a four, four percent rate. I mean, mm-hmm. right now it'd be tough to get any loan, but you know, you know, 10 year treasuries are what 0.7. Sure. So I think once we reach some level of stability here, you know, you'll probably be still be sub 5% in, uh, in hotel interest rates. Your business is focused. I know in, uh, in California and a lot on the right. central coast, actually where I am, uh, um, in the central coast of California, uh, how, um, you know, first of all, do you, is your business limited to uh, brokering in California? Uh, I guess the second question would be, do you, do you, how important do you think it is to buy a hotel where you actually, um, you know, live locally? 
Yeah, I, I made a decision. I mean, California is what the sixth largest economy in the, in, in the world. So I just decided I, I'm, I can make hay in California. I don't need to spread myself so thin. And the way I work is traditionally, I, I take about 30% of my deals are probably exclusive listings and the other 70% are, are opportunistic. So I need to be more localized to the extent that California is localized. So I've just decided to stay in California. Um, if I were to own something, you know, again, it just depends on your familiarity with the market. I mean, if you're very familiar with it, you, maybe you grew up in a state, you know, you don't necessarily need to, to be there. I think it's more about the quality of hotel you buy, uh, the brand, the high barrier entry and all that. I don't think you need to be right there. Uh, I mean, and if you have a management company, that's their job. Now, if you're going to jettison out the management company and owner operate, you know, when the cats away, the mice play, you need to be closer to your asset because you make sure everyone's showing yeah. up on time. And, but now there are guest reviews on TripAdvisor. You can really kind of see, you know, how your assets doing uh, from a far away distance. So it's not as important to be there, uh, be right on top of it. Right. So if you're, you know, just in general, again, speaking, and of course you're a broker in this space and, and you've been kind enough to already talk about going to REITs right now. If you're a buyer, if you're thinking about this space, when, when would you start looking at it given the conditions right now? What, what, when do you think if you're like, Hey, I really am interested in this class and maybe as we're rolling out of this recession, this may be something I want to look at. What signals in the economy would you would you want to wait for, um, or you know, are you just kind of plant yourself somewhere and just wait to see if there's distress? I mean, it, I'm just curious if you have any suggestions for people who are seriously considering this. Yeah. I think right now there's just you can't get deals done. You can't get the two sides to meet. Um, I think the, let's say there's a vaccine at the end of the year, and let's say you know, within six months thereafter, we're back to some sort of normalcy. We're just in a normal recession at that point. I think then you're probably going to have some owners that say, you know, I, I wanted to, I was kind of on the fence of selling before this COVID thing. And man, this was a pain in the neck. I'm out of here. And you can probably get a good quality asset at at a, some discount to what you would have paid say February just before COVID. I don't know if that's 10% or 20% less or whatever. So I don't know if we're going to see great distress. I think if we see great distress, that just means this, this thing goes on a lot longer than I'm anticipating. Yeah. You know, so if we pull out of this within 12 months, then I think you'll have an opportunity probably to buy some good quality hotels at something less than what you would have paid six months ago. And I, and hopefully, you know, we'll still be in a pretty low interest rate world. That's, that's what I would probably recommend. So, uh, Steve, tell, uh, well, obviously, you know, you told us a little bit about your business, but, uh, you know, if, if people are interested in getting in touch with you uh, and maybe talking about potentially buying something or, uh, you know, picking your brain on that, uh, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. They can call anytime, uh, 626-926-0000 is my phone number. And then my website is Titan Hospitality, the number one at gmail.com or if they Google Titan hospitality, I'm based in Pasadena. It'll, it'll come up quite easily. It's very helpful, Steve. I really appreciate your time today. And uh, thanks for being on wealth formula podcast. Great. Thank you again. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And I will say that, uh, and I think it's kind of exciting to think about all the things that we could be doing in the next few months. I mean, I would say the next six to 12 months, 
Uh, in addition to the fact that, you know, hopefully this pandemic and COVID-19 will be behind us, what I think is really interesting um, exciting, honestly, to me is that, you know, we have, in the, as I said, in the last few years, especially the last two or three years, um, really stuck to a very, very simplistic investment thesis and investor club. And that has been in large part to the fact that, you know, Listen, I'm uh, I as as many people have anticipated that the longest expansion in GDP in U.S. history had to end at some point, and that cycles would have to reset. And so, therefore, it made a lot of sense just to stick to completely boring and and things that people need. And that thesis has served us really, really well. But the exciting part about you know where we are is. You know, we're, you know, in, in a recession and now uh, the idea of us coming out of a recession and with GDP expansion gives us potentially a few years of runway. So you don't always have to feel like you're looking over your shoulder for the cycle to end. And I think that's um, a real, uh, real exciting situation. And, and like I said, I think the roaring 20s could be ahead so I am very positive in this regard. Hopefully you are too. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.